last time on CCF in Death. This is a countdown of our favorite and least favorite horror characters and horror franchises. I want to tell you right now, I'm kind of scared. I did choose a character from House of Mystery. And I bet you chose some of My province is a bird. You told me, Jeff, we're doing horror stories and we're doing How Low Moon. How Low Moon. And now the conclusion. We did it. And now the real daunting task is at hand because we have to do our top five best. And we have not heard your Len Wein pick yet, so I imagine it's coming up on this list. You're going to hear it right now. My number five pick is one thing. By Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson, the legendary 10-issue run that started in 1972. The writing was spectacular. The art was spectacular. The creatures that were introduced... Arcane and the other supernatural unmen and those concepts. It's too bad it only lasted with that team for 10 issues. Len Wein stayed until issue 13 and which when he was doing the artwork with Nesta Redondo. And then after that, other writers took over. And it's a fan favorite. And it made and it made uh, Wrightson and, and uh, Wayne's legend. Yeah. I, I sometimes think the only reason why um, it doesn't get even more love as a classic run is because... Somebody else that we'll end up talking about later on did Swamp Thing even more famously afterwards. But what, what Wienan writes and brought to it's incredible. I, I didn't put Swamp Thing on my list only because I don't think it really fits my definition of horror. It starts like a horror story, and then Swamp Thing becomes more of an exploration of a very depressed and distressed character seeking redemption. And it... Just stop being a horror comic for me, but I'm not knocking the fact that it is one for you. Well, it's a horror comic because he he fought monsters and 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 creatures that were half bodies and, and all that. It was a, a very horrific and scary elements that were being introduced issue after issue, and the artwork totally sold it. I mean, any lesser artist you would have laughed at it, but the fact that this uh, Wrightson could draw these things. And make you just oh, yeah. like gasp, gasp at, at their appearance. <laughs> so it, it, he really sold the book. And again, it, it, there's something about that ten issue run that just people they could forget the rest of the issues, but those ten issues is just special. Yeah, I, I think whenever I ask myself whether I think Swamp Thing is a horror comic, I find myself going back to the Incredible Hulk. If Swamp Thing is a horror comic, Incredible Hulk should be a horror comic. But I never think of Incredible Hulk as a horror comic. But he's a monster. He fights monsters issue after issue. But the structure of itself doesn't feel like a horror story to me, if that makes sense. That's fair. But yeah, I, and I think really it saddens me that none of my picks include Wrightson. Because if you're talking great horror comics, Wrightson needs to be in there somewhere. I just didn't have a run that I felt comfortable championing that he had done. But I, I own way too many issues of House of Mystery and House of Secrets based entirely on the covers, and most of them are Wrightson, because it's just, if there isn't a coffee table book, there needs to be. I mean, like, if you've ever read his Frankenstein, which I'm now kicking myself for not putting on my list, you know, clearly the man could do incredible, incredible things. Yeah, he was he was special. He was a special talent. He actually did a book many years later, a Spider-Man book called Hookie. It was a really? graphic novel. Yeah, and it was really good. I mean, it, it was like his big... Square bound graphic novel, and uh, I, I really was impressed with the work he did in that too. That was in the late eighties or something. Yeah, I I've never seen Wrightson do a straight superhero book. I'm very curious about this. 
Yeah, I mean, it had horror elements, of course. Okay. <laughs> you know, you, you got to go to the strength. But Spider-Man gets pulled in, a, I think, a different dimension where there's, like, creatures and he has to fight them off or something. But it was, hmm, it was, it was pretty good. Yeah, it's called Hooky. What an odd title. All right, my number five. Um, I'm going to go with I, Vampire from um, the House of Mystery title in 1981 through 1983. Uh, it's, a, it's a property I've only recently become more aware of because it, you know became the lead feature in House of Mystery at a point when horror was very much in the way out. And I think a lot of people missed this one. But I, I've got to tell you, it's phenomenally written. Um, at least while J.M. DeMatteis was doing it in the first you know, handful of issues. You have this vampire. I, the vampire who wants to resist his nature and be a good guy is not that original a concept, although it was less overdone in 1981 than it is now. But what was really cool about this character was, first of all, he had a very strong supporting cast. Um, it felt a lot like Master of Kung Fu with a vampire. That he had these this team that was constantly like doing the investigations, and he'd show up at the last second and be the agent in the field who assisted them. But what also made it really, really interesting was the major nemesis for the entire series was his ex-wife. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he had, like, you know what? Like in real life. <laughs> she, she had been a total angel. She was the inspiration of his life. And then when he turned her, she became all evil in a way that he didn't. So he's constantly trying to stop her, but he also is fighting himself because he's still in love with her at the same time. And somewhere between the, the tone of the whole thing and the characterizations and the dialogue and the complication of who he's fighting, I swear with all the adaptations they're doing of comics and the movies and TV shows now... If Showtime or HBO were to do a straight adaptation of the first couple of issues and make no modifications, it would be a bestseller. People would eat it up. It's that good. Wow. I, I did see uh, that book on the newsstands and, and the comic stores. I just never gave it a shot, but I did see a lot of nice... I think Collada did a bunch of covers for that, for that title. Speaking of which, of actually... I passed on it for years, uh, being a horror fan. One, because it was always in dollar bins. And two, because of those covers that were really not impressive to me. Really? Um, but, once it, but it was my, my wife, actually. It was Amber. I uh, was curious about it. And, um, you know, had me acquire a bunch of issues for her. And once I read them, I was absolutely blown away. Uh, wow. DeMatties is, is, and I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Is that I how you pronounce it? I, I think it's a, a pronounced Dematteis. Dematteis? Yeah. Big D. Like, <laughs> Whatever. Like, like that song, Amadeus, Amadeus. Like that. Yep. However you want to say it, the guy does not get brought up very often in classic comic circles. And I truly think he's a seriously underrated writer. Everything he's ever done, no, maybe not everything, almost everything he's ever done, I find incredibly refreshing and unique and powerful. And I, Vampire's the clearest horror example of that. But man, could that guy write and deserves more praise than he gets. I didn't know he was there that 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 uh, he's been around that long. I know I know he became famous doing Spider Man and he was also doing the Justice League Bawaha uh, period with Giffen. But yeah. I didn't know he, he predated that. I mean I didn't know he was in the industry that early. So it, it's interesting. Yeah, he does have a lot a, a big body of work and he always does a credible job. Yeah, and he's really outside the box. I think his um, his post-Justice League, um, or not post, during Justice League, Dr. Fate run is a seriously underrated run at two. Like, it just, when he gets into the supernatural, he does some really bizarre things that are really interesting. Nice. Well, you're introducing books that I think I might have to go hunt down. I'm and glad one of them is that, is that One of them is that Del Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now I want to read Baron Blood, and I'm sure I'm going to be disappointed, but I'm very curious about that one. Well, it has Frank Robbins' art, so you do what it what you want. I hear he's a bird. <laughs> <laughs> My God. <laughs> the thing people put on the internet. <laughs> All right, what's your number four, George? Number four. Number four. Okay, I'm juggling the last four here, but I'm going to say Brother Voodoo. Introduced in Strange Ooh. Tales 169, September 1973. Created by Stanley and Roy Thomas and John Romita. And written by, drum roll, 
Len Wayne and joined by Gene Colan. Now, Len Wayne made the list twice. You pulled a double right, Wayne. Then we top notch. In a nutshell, he's a doctor that comes back when he finds out his brother's sick, and it turns out his brother's sick from evil, uh, the evil voodoo priest, and he dies, and he takes up the mantle that his brother had, being a voodoo mystical master. Now the twist is. When he goes through the process of becoming this powerful voodoo person, he has his brother's dead spirit merged with him. So it's, it's almost like a dead man thing where the spirit comes out of him and helps him out of scraps and fights and against the supernatural elements. But the, the art by Gene Colan was just fantastic. The concept, everything about it, I really enjoyed. Now, it didn't last long. It only went, It only lasted four issues in Strange Tales, and I think it made some appearances in some of the black and white magazines. But it was a very interesting concept. It was refreshing, and again, the art sold it. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite horror stories in general in comics is, um, I think it's Batman 250, where um, mm -hmm. it's uh, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson um, come in contact with the Bronze Age version of the monk and his sister. And it's all Gene Colan's art that makes it work. It, it's really? what he does with it's so vibrant. And he does this thing with the eyes. Like in Magnolia, I think, sort of um, stole this later on, where he can, with the absence of color and darkness, make something glow, even though there's no actual color there. It's incredible. Mm. Yeah, Gene Colan was born to draw Batman. That's for sure. Yeah. But yeah, no, this book, I, I enjoyed this book. It was short lived. And I mean, everything is sales anyway. You know, if you, you pull out a book, if it doesn't sell, you move on to the next thing. What's weird is, I mean, I've only encountered Brother um, Voodoo through the uh, the magazine stories. And in those, you none of what you just talked about comes through. The premise is not clear at all. And I could never quite make out exactly what this dude's deal was as a result. If he was talking to his brother inside of him, I missed that. It just... I know back in that time period, there was a lot of great experimentation, but also a lot of characters being passed off from writer to writer to writer. And the people who are writing the magazine version of, of Brother Voodoo just didn't seem to get the memo. Yeah, yeah. But, but just, you know, it has such a nice start. Just the idea that, uh, uh, you know, his brother came out as a spirit from his body. It, it was a, just a nice touch. And it, and it was he was sort of like the kind of character was called on when there was like a supernatural problems. So yeah. he was that kind of guy. Well, now I've got another comic I want to seek out too. I got to read this. Yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's and you know, that which I've kind of heard recently doing the research for this, that issue 169, his debut, Marvel doesn't have it on digital because they don't have the original copies. They don't Weird. have the original, uh, you know, photo stats or whatever. So if you look at it in Marvel Limited, you'll find the other issue, but you won't find a debut. So I had that's to do, unfortunate. I had to do what you you know what you alluded to before and and think, <laughs> think it through other means to, to, to refresh uh, my memory. But we're not exactly pirates. We're pirates <laughs> with consciences. Well, we you know what? If something's must. not available, what do you want? All right. So we're up to my number four, aren't we? Yes, we are. All right, number four, I'm going to talk about Michael Fleischer and Jim Aparo's work on the Spectre in Weird Adventure Comics from 1974 through 1975. Yeah, baby! Yeah! <laughs> Finally, the first thing that we duplicate on. He makes my list also, that book. Beautiful. And it's Jim Aparo once again. I, I actually think his work on Phantom Stranger was even more beautiful to look at. But I love how Aparo, I, from what I understand in a way, co-plotted these stories. Because the fun of it is, it, it's... How do I explain this and not sound like a total maniac? It's, <laughs> I don't know I don't know if you can. <laughs> I, this is normally not my thing, but it's total torture porn. It's... Yes, instead it of is. Trying to, instead of trying to make the Spectre a character with a complex persona, he just shows up to torture people who really freaking deserve it. And it's really, really gratifying to watch. Yes, it is. It's, it's the 1970s version of attending a public execution. It's just, well, they deserved it, so I have to feel bad about watching this. You know, I'm going to add that they set you up because every person gets killed really, really deserved it. I mean, they're yes. really bad people. They have people that... 
that in one story they come into a place and gas everybody and kill mm-hmm. them. And there's another, you know, there's just so many merciless killings that once you, you know, once you he gets them back, it's like, yeah, you're almost cheering. You can see yourself yelling and screaming like at a movie theater. You know? Yeah, it's it's really hard to feel bad for them. And what I love too is how cleverly this thing subverts the comic code. So I mean, this is not being done. How did in a black they get away with comic. that? How oh, did it's, they get it's away with that? Brilliant. I mean, they lawyered this thing. They read the comics code exactly and never exactly broke any of the rules. So, like, one of the comics code rules is you can't show blood. So instead, you've got um, a character melting into wax. Or, like, you've got a character who's turned into wood and then put through a wood chipper. Like, all these violent, horribly, ridiculously violent things, but they never show blood. They never show dismemberment. It's always letting your imagination do the work for you. As a matter of fact, they always show in a shadow or behind something or at the obscure, the actual violence. Oh, yeah. That, that the specter is committing upon these people. I got a whole list of things. I have oh, a whole I, list, issue by issue, of what happens to these characters. Because oh, it's so I, I will give away my favorite one. I'll just say it involves um, a duck and a pair of, of uh, scissors. Actually, they're not scissors. They're pro- it's a protractor. What? It wasn't scissors? No. <laughs> there was a protractor. You know the, the one that you open and, and, you, and you put it on one, you put one point on the paper and yeah. it goes around and makes a circle? That's what it was. And oh. it, it was fantastic. It was spectacular. Okay, I cannot <laughs> wait for your write-up on this. I, okay. We will, well, we will move ahead because right now. I, I, I want to – is it your number three? I'll make it my number three because all the, uh, the rest <laughs> are kind of interchangeable. But I'll let you finish okay. your comment and I'll add mine. No, heck no. I just want to hear you go through every single method of death. This is amazing. Please do it. Okay. Uh, okay. This is, I guess this would be my number three, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Spectre, February 1974. Adventure Comics. It started with 431. It ran all the way to 440. So we're talking about like about a year. Not quite 10 issues. Issue 431. He melts one. He turns another one into a skeleton and while he's on a plane holding a gun to oh, a woman. Oh, I love the, that the panel. Lights, the lights go off. And then when the lights come on, the skeleton is on the ground holding the gun. And the way <laughs> and Paro draws that is so amazing. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it's it's incredible. And the third one, he makes him run off a cliff in a car. Okay, issue 432. Uh, this, is, I think, yeah, okay. One of them is cut in half with a large scissor. That Maybe that's what <laughs> I'm going to That was what I was thinking of, yes. Yeah. Another is turned into sand, and he just dissipates. And another female who's a model, and is actually in a modeling show, he makes her turn like a million years old in two seconds. And she dies in front of everybody while that she's on the runway. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah. It was awesome. Okay, issue 433. One of the killers is pulled into an open grave and drowns in the sand. And the second killer is turned into glass and shattered. Oh, what do I remember that one? He doesn't even touch them. He just looks at them and like they... It's almost like hocus pocus, whatever. George, I haven't uh, read some of these in 20 years, and yet I can clearly see the panels you're talking about. That's how powerful this was. It was powerful, and it was like you said, it was torture porn. So, and we never seen anything like it. And you're right. How, how they got away with this? But they got away with it because they obscured and put them behind things. So they didn't just show you straight right. out what was happening. Even the skeleton. One minute he's holding the woman hostage with a gun. The the next minute the lights go off, and the next second you see the next picture you see is a skeleton on the ground with the gun and it's still in his hand. No, no skin at all, just a skeleton. Yeah, it What's was amazing quite amazing. Is they circumvented the code so well that I don't think anybody would dispute the fact that this comic was more troubling and more graphic than what the black and white magazines were doing. Yeah, I mean, again, I I don't know how they got away with it, but they did. I mean, I, I love right. Creepy and Eerie. I love them to death. They had nothing on the way Aparo and Fleischer were doing this. Nothing. It was really good, these issues. But, you know, it wasn't just about the violence. I think halfway through the series, they had a, a recurring female character that fell in love with him and wanted to have a relationship. But he finally has to reveal to her, hey, I'm dead. And that was the 
that's the point where the, the series takes a complete abrupt turn, where it becomes character-focused instead. You still have the horror elements, but, like, remember they introduced a character who both is and is not Clark Kent? Mm-hmm. Like, very late in the series, and, like, yeah. it's Yeah, he calls not, him Clark Kent. Right. He tells it's him not he's interesting. Like, oh, yeah, you're Clark it Kent. It absolutely <laughs> should be interesting, but it's not, because you're like, can we get back to the torture porn, please? And it's, you're right. And I, I'm... I truly believe the series would have lasted longer if that hadn't happened. I mean, he still he still ends up killing a lot of people in ghastly ways all the way to the yeah. end. Yeah, it's just not as fun anymore. <laughs> well, maybe you got desensitized. Did you ever think of that? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, to, to wrap it up, okay, 4, 434, he turns a murder to an, a mannequin and he belts, okay? Uh, 435, he cases somebody in an ice block. Yep. And, and there's another one where... He, uh, this gunman is in a store and he enlarges an action fi- a, a Viking action figure that has an axe. He enlarges him and he cut and he cuts it and he chops him into pieces. I mean, you have to and seriously that, and, wonder, like seriously, what the frick was Fleischer smoking? It's crazy as hell. That's what made that's what made it fun. You're like, what? You know? And and actually, the the character you mentioned, the one that he keeps calling Clark Kent. He picks up an action figure on the ground in the crime scene, and he sees like a Viking with an axe, like this is a small little action figure, a, a Viking with an axe sticking in somebody's uh, like a, a, another character's head. So they actually she shrank them back down into yep. action figures, depicting yep. the the violence. Anyway, uh, uh, okay, that and this is the one where you said where he turns somebody into wood, and he puts him into a table saw, but. That scene where he turns, the way he cuts him, he does it with his back obscuring the saw and what he's doing. And right. then the next panel, you see him actually sliced in pieces. So and he turned <laughs> the guy into wood first, didn't he? He turned him to wood first. Yeah. Right. So that uh, way he wasn't actually it, doing that to a human body. No, I mean that way. There's also no blood. You're just seeing the right. wood, and that's it. Uh, Four thirty-six is the one where he turns. He stabs two criminals with a protractor. That's that's the one I was referring to. <laughs> okay, now crazy. I remember that one. Yes, it's crazy as hell. <laughs> okay, uh, issue four thirty eight. Uh, it's a story of scientists having people abducted and killed and put into display cases, almost like a museum of natural history. Mm-hmm. And Specter brings a, one of the cases. This gorillas, and he makes them come to life, and he makes the gorillas rip the scientists and his help with the pieces. <laughs> So if you're saying he toned it down for that, okay, he toned it down. Yeah, he did. Uh, issue 439 and 440, the two-parter, the last two issues, and that's the one you're talking about where he turns in, he turns a toy duck. Because one of the gangsters was named Ducky, and he used to carry <laughs> around this little toy duck. Yep. He turns he turns the the, uh, the duck into this huge thing that looks like about you know, two stories large. And he actually starts biting Gangster into pieces. In the shadows. Yeah, in the shadows. You see it in the background. But you right. see him grabbing grabbing the body. <laughs> and, and, and then the last, the last killing is that there's two guys trying to go escape in a car. And he, uh, he shoots them into space. <laughs> the car is actually flying into outer space. So, you know, he always wins. It's funny. You know, so a funny thing about this uh, series which they started doing it later on in a Madrid run, they don't really have anybody here really beat the Spectre. Well, and I but, think that's why this came, like, only a short time after um, Ween's Phantom Stranger run. And this was the solution Ween had been looking for, where instead of trying to tell a traditional complex story where you have the characters struggle, the entire fun of it was just the torture and horror. Spectre didn't have to struggle. He was just this omnipotent... Well, not omnipotent, but he was super knowing and super powerful and there was no need to try and give him a challenge because it was fun enough just watching him do what he did yeah i mean the challenge was that you know again they they, they brought the subplot where he wanted to become human and and they, they actually the entity which might be god in this story makes him human and and but he ends up getting killed right away right and he, and he gets resurrected so it's it just to bring home the point where you know, I can't have a normal life. I have to be this guy. So, yeah. but I mean, it, it really was bizarre that no one really got the upper hand on the actual Spectre entity. But that's what I loved about it. It was allowed to be a horror story instead of giving it the temptation of doing a regular ongoing, like, you know, traditional title. 
it was really just we're going to do a horror reach issue and we have the specter and i you 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 can tell Aparo is having so much more fun this time around you know he he tried with ween he wanted to have fun with ween but fleischer really let him run this it, it really was fun a fun it's a guilty pleasure type of book oh, you know yeah. but uh i mean it it was fun and you know i mean again it did get canceled i mean you can't just keep doing this forever anyway well also <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever seen um there were unpublished stories that were finally um, published in the 1980s reprint volume, Wrath of the Spectre. Mm-hmm. And um, those later I stories... I actually have that. I have that, yeah. that, that, that uh, I think it was Baxter, Baxter Books. Yes. I was looking all over the place for it. I couldn't find them. And it does have an unpublished story. Yeah, more than one, I think. It's got several. And I, I, think, I think it was just one. But yeah, you could be right. I thought it was more than one. But whatever the case may be, I, I read them once and my thought was... I'm really kind of glad DC didn't publish these. Yeah. You know what it is? I, it looked like there was a, a, a big difference in the way the art looked. So I'm thinking it was a script that was around. And then like years later, they had Apollo draw the scripts. Because yeah, it didn't well, look anything like the style of our earlier Apollo. Possibly. Or it could have been the anchor. I'm not sure. But I, I mean, I was paying more attention to, you know, the, the general arrangements, the breakdowns and the plot. And it just yeah. didn't have the oomph of the earlier stories at all. <laughs> yeah, but we we'll we'll always have Paris. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't even say that, like, you know, years later, like, it's not the same as the Spectre I grew up with, because I read them all in one straight sitting. I, I went right from the original ones, The Wrath of Spectre number four, so it just, it, it, there's a total drop in quality. Yeah, well, you know, you can't, sometimes you can't recapture the magic of something. <laughs> is magic really the word you want to use for torture porn? Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, you're right. Ooh, that was... I, I don't know how we're going to top that, George. That was the highlight of the episode right there. Well, you go fun, through man. every single death. That was amazing. And you know, you, you asked a question, a rhetorical question before uh, when we talked earlier. You said, was it scary? Was the story scary? And I'm saying, yeah. well... I wasn't scared, but those criminals sure look scared. <laughs> I was cheering and then immediately hating myself for doing it. <laughs> yeah, you know. Kill that like, guy in the worst possible. Oh, gee, that doesn't sound good, you know. Let that duck eat him in half. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. All right, my number three. Uh, speaking of, of artists who just deserve to be on this list because they do horror so well. Um, I'm going to talk Richard Corbin here. Um, he did a feature, I think there were three different stories featuring this character in Erie Magazine in 1974, Child. And um, Child was, it's its not a creative concept at all. What Corbin effectively did was he took the Frankenstein monster and put the face of a toddler on it. Oh. And that's 90% of what it is. The original, you know, Boris Karloff, James Whale Frankenstein film, the entire power of it is Karloff is playing the monster like a misunderstood infant, but he still is the face of a monster. By Corbin putting this sweet, soft child's face on it, and Corbin excels at drawing soft. He always gives these, you know, very, very round features that just feel warm and cuddly, even while drawing some really disturbing stories. You just want to give Child a hug the entire time while he's being chased and harassed by, you know, mobster, not mobsters, mobs of, of people, you know, calling for his blood. And this is also, this is at a point where um, Warren Publishing was experimenting with color inserts in their magazines because they were primarily black and white horror magazines. But Corbin was pioneering these, you know, different ways of, of bringing color process to these magazines and you know these child installments were done in this incredibly warm colors you know super super warm tender colors while people are calling for this things a murder just because it exists and that plus some excellent narration um just really drove home the effect of the original frankenstein film even more potently and spoiler alert in the third and final story childhood's end child dies and it's both so beautiful and so tragic at the exact same time and corbin just loves playing up the irony it's it's i read it 
whenever I can. Um, it, it's it's so powerful. It transcends, you know, a Halloween reread. It, it's just, it's a classic in its own right and just beautifully done. Wow. Okay. So the premise was what? That he was like a Frankenstein? Yeah, he's basically a modern-day Frankenstein monster, except okay. that he has a child's face. Wow. That's spooky. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely it is. I would admit that Richard Corbin's artwork kind of freaks me out sometimes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely it does. And if you've yeah. ever read some of his um, non-kid-safe stuff, it's even more disturbing. Yeah. I mean, it's just something that's, you know, kind of makes me feel sleazy about re- reading his oh, stuff. I, I mean, he's fantastic, but it just, you know, it's just something about it. I remember years he did years ago he did a, a Hulk miniseries. It was a couple of issues, and it and it featured uh, Doc Sampson in it, and it's just a sleazy aspect to the way everybody looks. I, I don't know Corbin's background, but I'd be shocked if his influence, if his primary influence wasn't underground comics, you know, with an X, not a CS, because yeah, there's, yeah. it's weird. His comics usually have nothing to do with sex, and yet feel very pornographic. Well, he did. And, he and, wasn't above. Putting new bodies. Oh in, no, he wasn't. He wasn't. But Child is an exception to the rule in that there's there's nothing sexual about it. He's playing up a different kind of warmth. You know, it's the the pudgy face of a little child that you just want to hug and kiss. It, it's it's so beautiful how he does it. Wow. Well, so this is something you reread, huh? Yeah, it's 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 sad to go from Wrath of the Spectre with you know guilty torture porn fun. Guilty reading, pleasure reading, too. Something that's distinctly dark and tragic and, and not fun at all. Yeah, it's, sounds it's like a sad beautiful story. beautiful and necessary. All right, let, let's switch gears and get out of this funk I've put us in. Give me your number two, George. Number two. Uh, number two. This I got introduced to, and the only way it could have been introduced, it was a black and white magazine that Marvel released. And it was called Tales of the Zombie. That, that, it, it, yes! And that yes! actually, it featured, it had, a, it was a lot of stories inside the book because it was like a hundred pages magazine size. But the main character for me was Simon Goth the Zombie. Yeah, baby. Yes! Let me tell you, that book, it debuted by, with a Thomas story and a John Buscema art. So he kicked it off with top-notch creators. And then soon after, with issue two, Steve Gerber and Pablo Marcos took over the book. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the story pretty much centers around a person that's a pretty despicable businessman. And he abuses everyone around him. And he ends up getting murdered by his, his uh, gardener, who, who was also part of the lifestyle of zombie and voodoo and all that. And he, has, he, he abducts him and has them taken to a place where they're doing a ritual to have him killed. And they end up killing him, and he becomes a zombie. Now... I read about the first four issues. It ran for about 10 issues in this magazine style. But they had a lot of graphic violence. I mean, stuff I wasn't used to reading in regular Marvel comic books. I mean, it was a magazine size. And I mentioned earlier that my, oh, yeah. parents, didn't care what, my parents didn't care what we brought into the house. So, so we're looking at <laughs> zombies ripping people. I mean, literally ripping people in half. I remember there's a scene where he's fighting a snake that's trying to, yes. to, to uh, break, you know, to... to uh, to uh, install him and kill him, and he ends up ripping with his bare hands the snake's head off. And I never seen yep. anything like that. And then later on in that same story, he goes back and eats the snake because he realizes he's yep. feeling hunger. <laughs> that <laughs> so was the I'm third like, issue. Yes. What is this? And then you know, again, uh, Steve Gerber took over and he uh, started creating a world around them where there's despicable characters. There's one guy that's that. That, that finds like, a talisman that controls the zombie. Mm-hmm. And he has him attacking people. <laughs> I didn't get any further than that, but I remember that from when I was younger. And it lived right up to uh, to, to my memory. And I'll say another thing. Pablo Marcos is way underrated. I mean, oh, yeah. I remember him from doing artwork in the Avengers book over uh, George Perez pencils. He did the inks and it looked really good, but I didn't realize how good of a penciler he actually was at a storyteller and he oh, yeah. really shines in these books again and, and really ta- spectacular talking about Gerber's range and that same issue that begins with him um, violently murdering that giant serpent 
that same story ends with him very gently murdering a woman who needed to die in the That's most right. delicate of ways. And it's yep. such a bookend contrast. Now, I got up to issue five, and at that point, somebody's taking over, c- control him through some kind of a charm or something. And mm-hmm. it was just getting good. So <laughs> <laughs> Issue three is still my favorite of the entire run, but I think they're all good. But um, don't forget that um, Simon Garth was not created by Roy Thomas. It was actually, God knows how Thomas remembered this. They were taking a 1950s um, Atlas era Marvel story and reviving yeah. it and building a whole world around it. Well, I'll I, I go you one better. That 1953 tale where he was introduced was written by Stan Lee and drawn by Bill mm-hmm. Everett. So how do you yeah. like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite good. It seemed, again, once uh, the monsters started to become a, a viable genre, they get they began to pick up all or anything they had, whether it was vampires or or the zombie from the fifties. So it was it, yeah. you know they were all in, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think it's I think that's a stupid choice, and I think you have no taste whatsoever. Um, but my number <laughs> I was two waiting is, for that. <laughs> but my number two is is um is Simon Garth from Tales of the Zombie. Oh no way! <laughs> it really is. <laughs> oh wow. Oh, I told you I love Steve Gerber, man. Um, well, I'm interested in to know how you ran across this. I ran across this when I was a young person. How did oh, you I mean, discover this book? I mean, I, I started reading comics in 1989, so everything I love I came to afterwards as an adult. It's it's one of the reasons I love the classic comics form so much was I, I went there and I knew a little about comics, and people there turned me on to all these amazing things I never would have found otherwise. So oh, wow. I... I mean, my whole thing with Simon Garth is I, I got into Man-Thing first, and unlike you, I love Man-Thing. And one thing I love about Man-Thing is that second-person narration, which they've been doing since at least the 1950s, but Steve Gerber is absolutely the king of. You know, he really puts you there directly as the reader. He, he puts you in the story thinking like that creature and thinking for that creature. And Man-Thing departs from the horror genre pretty quickly. But Simon Garth is essentially... In my mind, Man-Thing 2.0. Gerber was writing the two simultaneously for a while, but Simon Garth has the same style of narration. He's also in swamps, but he doesn't leave that horror element. He stays there and continues to be in horror-like stories. And I think even more importantly, I I debate about which version I like better, but whereas Man-Thing doesn't have a consciousness, Simon Garth has a redemption story. Here's a guy who on every possible level was trash, and he's been given a really warped opportunity to come back and set things right. And all he wants yeah. to do is go back to sleep and die forever. But since he's there, his link to the mortal world is his daughter. And if he can somehow set things right with her, he is redeemed. And so you see throughout the series, she becomes gradually more aware of his existence. He becomes gradually more entwined in her life. And I think the final issue is her wedding, if I remember correctly. Oh, I got I got to finish the series then. You know, I yeah. tell you, I, I I never I always thought Steve Gerber was a bit overrated, but really? the more and more I discover about him, and and I, I I do like the stuff he writes. So I'm I'm gonna have to dig in a little more <laughs> a little deeper with him. I I know I I never read Howard the Duck oh, until a couple of years ago. No, oh, I mean I, I read it a couple of years ago, and I said you know this is pretty good. You know, yeah. Steve Gerber, he he thinks outside of the box. You know. Make well, you, you know, care I, about the characters. I used to say that um, Dave Sims Cerebus was one of my favorite things ever, um, even with some of the major issues with his writing, until I read Howard the Duck, and I'm like, oh, crap, Cerebus just ripped this guy off. <laughs> it's possible. I, although I, mean, I, I have to disagree with Cerebus. I, you know, they, I know. Should, they, should make, they should make prisoners read that to talk to them. <laughs> Sim did some really exciting, innovating, and pioneering things that, that extended way beyond Gerber. But, I mean, Cerebus is Howard the Duck. <laughs> it's just... I, I'm glad you see the beauty in Simon Garth and in Gerber as well. That makes me happy. Yeah, Gerber, you know, he made the story come alive a little more. Again, I do have to finish the reading that series. Yeah. And well, if Jim Shooter hadn't right driven now? him away, what else he might have done for Marvel? <laughs> yeah, everybody's Jim Shooter's a bad guy. <laughs> well, what number are we up to? We're up to number one, my friend. Okay, number one. This this one you might not know, 
it's a bit obscure, and this is the only book that ever scared me. And I'm not a, I'm not a scaredy cat. I don't jump at things. I sleep well at night. But I'm this so is one book this. written written by Alan Moore in Swamp Thing number thirty seven, which Ooh, also happens okay. to be yeah, which also happens to be the debut of John Constantine. Okay. But in the course of the story, John Constantine is getting is, is trying to gather together. It's like people that have helped him in the past, and there's one scene where there's a cat where, where there's a character. I, it looks like it might have been a past love interest is painting on an easel, right in our apartment. It looks like a high rise, and she's painting, and and she's talking on the phone. You know, she's painting, and you see odd shapes take take form on the easel. And she goes to another next room and comes back, and when she looks at the easel. It's blank. There's nothing there. And she turns around and looks at a closet that has a door, a little bit of jar. So as she enters the closet, she sees a form of a man with his hands sewed to the back, his back and his head twisted the other way. And it happens to be a demon called Envunche. That's her first <laughs> appearance. And that thing comes out of that closet. And she starts running like crazy and jumps out the window and, and they're just killing herself in the, in the fall. But when I saw that creature, I mean, look, that what you, 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 what, what's happening is that your eyes being drawn to that easel and, and, and you're seeing the shape take little by little and, and the shapes are abstract. You don't know what's, what it's showing. And when you finally look in the closet, what it's showing is the outline of the hand in the back of the of, of the, this creature's uh, body and the head the other way, and that that scared the crap out of me. I mean, that, it it turns out to be a demon that that was put together by a coven in South America to to uh, I guess exterminate you know the the people that uh, John Constantine was trying to uh, gather together. But man, I was like, holy crap! <laughs> that that book. That's the number one scary moment, and I guess horror character that I that I think of. And again, gonna... I don't scare. I don't scare easy. Yeah. I know it's just a comic book, but the way it was presented and the way it unfolded. I mean, which, which person as a kid didn't get afraid of something in the closet or something under the bed? And here you, it's actually realized in the story and in a series of panels. It's funny. I was. I was relatively sure your number one was going to be um, more Swamp Thing, but I thought you were going to go with issue number 21. I did not see this one coming. That's pretty cool. Hmm. What happens 21? 21 was uh, more second issue, but really the, the first issue of what he was really trying to do with the series. That was Anatomy Lesson. It's oh, okay. one with um, Jason Woodrow um, having the big revelation that um, Swamp Thing is not actually... The scientist, he's, he's just a bunch of swamp mass that gained consciousness and wondering what's going to happen when Swamp Thing realizes this and then Swamp Thing does. And the entire time you're kind of waiting for Swamp Thing to come and get him and there's all this anticipation building up. Mm, okay. I, yeah. I, I, I think I might have read that issue, but I just don't remember having the impact. Oh, it, it that one floors me and almost, almost scares me. But uh, I see where you're coming <laughs> from with your choice. But um, that actually, this is going to give me a great choice to get into my tinfoil hat theory this time around. Tinfoil hat theories. Which is, I, 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 was, I was tempted <laughs> to pick more Swamp Thing for this, except that for the majority of the run, even though Moore tells some of my favorite horror stories of all time, more Swamp Thing is generally not a horror title. And I thought about going with um, Sandman, because some of my favorite modern horror stories happened in the pages of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, but Sandman is not really a horror title. And then I began to do some thinking, and I realized that if you try and chart... We had uh, several members on the forum trying to pinpoint when the horror genre died in comics. And um, it's, it's an interesting factor that in 1984 is almost undisputably the final last gasp death of traditional horror comics. After that, there's almost nothing. Um, you have Fright Nights published in 1988, but otherwise the traditional horror comic just doesn't seem to exist at all from the big companies at all. And it was a slow decline in 1976. 
is where um, M.W. Gallagher is the one who found this. In a letter column in Man Bat number two, they're announcing the cancellation of the series and explaining that while the horror genre had been booming at one point, Marvel has essentially come to the conclusion that the interest is beginning to wane. And so you start seeing Marvel begin to pull out of the horror genre. And yet it takes until 1978, I think, is when you start seeing DC really shut down their horror titles. And then in 1983, the very end of that is when House of Mystery finally ends. And then in 1984, even though the big two are out of the horror genre, Charlton is pumping out a ton of horror titles. And Pacific has one horror title as well, Twisted Tales. Both companies go under around this time, and probably not because of the winning interest in horror. But nobody picks up the torch after that. You just don't see horror titles coming out after 1984. And I think it's entirely Alan Moore's fault. <laughs> that never heard that one before. <laughs> so the problem is not that he did something bad. The problem is he did something very good. Saga of the Swamp Thing begins with one amazing horror story. And then Moore's like, but that's not all I want to do with this creature. Wow. And he goes on and tells stories that have a gothic tone to them. They have horror elements to them, but he's not trying to scare you for the most part. And then that inspires, or I don't know that inspires, but I assume it inspires Neil Gaiman and what he does with Sandman. If it doesn't inspire him directly, it certainly inspires why DC gave him the chance to do what he does. Where he's telling stories that are, you know, about the God of Nightmares. You know, the horror element is there, it's in place. But there are very few stories in that run that overtly are trying to actually scare you. They're not telling horror stories. And as a result, there's this whole new way of doing horror in comics that because horror comics really can't be scary, they stop trying to scare you and instead just try to have creepy elements. So like, for example, House of Mystery and House of Secrets get revivals in the 2000s. And neither one is telling scary stories. It's just stories that have that horror element to it. In the same way that, you know, post-Watchmen superheroes are deconstructed and not really superheroes anymore. Mm. Post-Swamp um, post Thing horror stories aren't really horror stories anymore. So Alan Moore broke two genres <laughs> within only a couple years of each other. Is this your tinfoil hat theory? This is my tinfoil hat theory. I, I think... You will, it is very few and far between that you will ever see a horror story or a traditional horror comic done after 1984 because Alan Moore broke the genre. He showed a different way to do it that people find more appealing overall. I think they used to have a tag on, on the Swamp Thing series. I just say sophisticated suspense, something like that. Yes. And, and it's kind of what, you know, Vertigo became that. There are all these things that have horror elements to them, but no one's trying to actually scare you anymore. You know, those that that Alan Moore, if he's saying he drove everybody out of business because he was so good, <laughs> possible. <laughs> more that it, it changed the expectations for what a horror title should be. Hmm. So, I mean, like, there have been, you know, failed attempts since then. I, I remember in the 2000s there was um, Bela Lugosi's Tales from the Grave which was trying really hard to be like, you know, a 1950s Tales from the Crypt type story. And it just, it, it first of all, it was independent, which made it really hard. But it just, it felt, even with modern news stories, it felt backwards post-more. Hmm. Nobody wants those kinds of stories anymore. We want to see something more mature, something more artistic, something that hints at horror but doesn't try every month to scare you. Every once in a while, you know, Neil Gaiman will throw you a 24 hours or a calliope, but most of his stories aren't doing that. And most of Alan Moore's stories with Sandman, sorry, with Swamp Thing, were not trying to scare you, though a few did. It wasn't really about that anymore. You know, the, the, nature, the nature of storytelling in comic books, it, it can't be that you're going 100, 100 miles an hour every issue. You have to have things that break up, that, that you have to have changes in the storytelling time to time. You know, look at Fantastic Four. They introduced Galactus in, in issue 48, 49, and 50 is pretty much wrapped up. And the very next issue, 51, is this human interest story where the thing 
is, is you know down and he's replaced by somebody else. No, no, no galaxy spanning uh, topics. Yeah. Nothing. You have to bring it down. Sometimes you have to do that. So now you look at at at, at uh, the Swamp Thing by Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, Sandman. You can't have you can't have that same level every issue. You have to have issues that go to a different subject and it slows things down. And and I think what happened, lesser writers, they just see the big the big event and they think that's all it is to the storytelling. There's a build up that makes these books special and a lesser writer won't know how to build it up to that point. So if you're I saying agree. no one else could reach the level that a gaming or a more more had that's that's legitimate. And I, I think you could take this back to Len Wein when we talked about him earlier <laughs> and why The Phantom Stranger didn't work and why his version of Swamp Thing both worked and didn't work. Wein was frustrated with the idea of trying to have an ongoing character in an ongoing narrative experience horror every single month. If he's doing a done-in-one, sure, that's easy. But how do you continually put... And on a, a regular character that you're following each time, go through a traditional horror story every single month. And as a result, he experimented and tried to find other things. And I think it's fitting that Alan Moore broke the genre on Swamp Thing, which was Len Wein's creation. He's the answer to the question that Len Wein was asking in volume one, which is, what do I do with this character when there aren't going to be murders every single issue? Have him meet Batman? Like, where do I go with this guy? Where do I go with the Phantom Stranger when, you know, I can't give him, you know, two-bit magicians to battle each month? What do I do instead? And Alan Moore said, I'm going to have entire issues of a creature sitting in a swamp battling depression. And people want to read that. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, if you're a top-notch writer, you can you can do that. And people still follow you. Because they're following. Yeah. I think I think part of the problem is a lesser writer, they don't know how to write characters the same way and or the same level as the top writers. So you're not interested in the character. There, there have been several storylines that I've read, you know, since I've been reading comic books where the subplot and the plot of what's happening to the lead character keeps coming back for more. It isn't necessarily <laughs> who they're fighting. It's what's happening in their lives. One thing I, I, I could think of when the Fantastic Four, the, Sue and Reed were going through their marital problems, that was compelling to come back every issue to, to see what was going on with that. So, you know, yeah. it can't just be about the action of who you're killing. It has to be about do you care about the character and you want to come back month after month to see what's happening with them. Well, if my tinfoil hat theory wasn't crazy enough, let me throw this into the mix as well. <laughs> I would argue that Alan Moore's greatest strength is writing from the point of view of monsters, even in non-monster comics. That's what Watchmen was. That's what V for Vendetta was. That's what um, my, gosh, one of my favorite Alan Moore stories of all time is the one he did for that Batman annual starring um, Preston Payne, Clayface 3, I think it is, Mm -hmm. where it's just told from his point of view and he's effectively a monster. I think most of Moore's greatest stories are trying to access the thinking of a creature who either behaves monstrously or is perceived as a monster. It makes, I tell you, it does make you look in, inside yourself a little bit because a lot of these yeah. characters could be us. Maybe not the man who has everything. Or maybe not. <laughs> or whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. <laughs> but, you know, you look at you look at the Watchmen. You could yeah, be right absolutely. about that too, but, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think that, that Alan Moore was responsible for the for the fall of the horror title, but I just think it was going out already. <laughs> and he just gave a different twist it, to something that was already leaving, going out anyway. It definitely was going out already, but I, I think there is a hard line of after 1984, you just don't see horror stories anymore or, or traditional horror titles anymore. And February 1984 is when he did Swamp Thing. It's when he first, you know, came on and, and, and redefined everything. You know, you could take a comic book and have a horror story in it. You know, a regular yes. comic book, you could just put a horror story in it. You know, it doesn't have to be every issue is a horror story. So if you're saying... Yeah, but you're the guy who doesn't like superheroes and supernatural horror monsters mixing. Well, there's a power imbalance. <laughs> Werewolf yes. Night cannot beat anybody in the Marvel Universe. So <laughs> don't put them in a story. 
I don't want to see, you know, I don't want to see Man Wolf in the story because it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't want to see Man Wolf in the story, period. Let's just leave it there. Finally, we agree on something tonight. Good. Oh, boy. Well, we, we agreed on no, Simon actually, yeah. Garth, yeah, Spectre. Right. That's right. That's right. Hey, hey, look, I mean, I'm surprised it, it, that with everything to choose from, we actually connected on two different, two different uh, um, yeah. stories, so. I hope our listeners realize that we, we in fact, did not plan this in advance at all. Like, we did not share each other's lists. We did not discuss anything. This was complete surprise that we overlapped like this. No collusion, man. No collusion. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Talk about horror stories. Um, but I, you know what, George? I'm going to bet my number one is not something that ever would have been on your list. I'm still, I'm still want to go see what Dracula is from Dell comic books. Oh, yeah. Well... I don't think I'm going to win you over on my number one at all. And I did not choose this to be edgy. I'm not trying to be provocative, but this is pretty bat crazy. I apologize for that. But it truly is my favorite. It truly is my... I did not get confused. This was not supposed to be number one on my worst list. This is truly my favorite, favorite horror property in comics ever. Oh, boy. Oh, God. You're, you're going to laugh at me. Go ahead. Teen Titans, number 33 through 43, 1971 through 1973, by Bob Haney. Go ahead, I'm ready for the mockery. Uh, Teen Titans with Bob Haney? Well, I mean, I will admit, any story by Bob Haney is kind of scary. But, I mean, what, what happens in that issue? All right, so it, it's a it's a eleven issue run. What had happened was um, they'd given the title away to other people because people had sort of lost touch with the nineteen sixties Titans who were saying groovy and you know all that stuff all the time. So they gave it to a series of other writers, and it, it didn't quite take off the way they wanted it to. So they give it back to Haney. But what they essentially do before there ever was a Scooby Doo, the Teen Titans are in a Scooby Doo like situation where essentially. They're called to supernatural situation after supernatural situation. Except in this case, it really is monsters. It's not oh. someone faking and pretending. It's real. <laughs> and what's powerful about these issues is the weird contrast of it all. These are brightly colored, silly characters facing some downright messed up supernatural stuff. And it's sort of like... It's like those scenes in any good horror movie where you have the character that you know is absolutely no match for the monster. You're just waiting for it to go down. There's no way that Robin and Aqualad are going to stop (laughs) the big bad monster. It's it's not going to happen. Wow. And so they they manage to win most of the time. But um, some of the best, two of the most noteworthy stories from an only 11-issue run... Um, number one of them got really, really disturbingly real really fast. They had um, one of the first black heroes in ever at DC, which was um, Mal, um, late of the Guardian, who, because of the way DC was, Mal couldn't even have a costume. Mal couldn't even get a code name. He had no powers. He was just a kid who was there helping them each issue. He's rarely even on the cover. So DC was really sensitive about how they handled race. And yet Bob Haney has them go against the ghost of a freaking slave owner. <laughs> what, what issue is this? And the slave... Oh, geez, I, let me look up the actual issue number for you. Um, but while I am, let me just explain this. They don't even try to, like, pretend it's not a thing. The ghost sees Mal and assumes it's a freaking escaped slave and starts trying to capture him. And it's like... They're so afraid to handle race at all, and Haney just goes for it with no regard whatsoever, and it's disturbing. It, it's it's so uncomfortable and messed up that I read it all the time. It's it's such a memorable issue. This would have been, this might have been issue number 41. Yeah, it's issue number 41, I'm pretty sure. And my favorite, favorite, favorite issue of the bunch is um, it's the final issue. Number 43 from January, February, 1973. I don't even know how to explain what's going on in this one. And Haney is, Haney's an interesting guy. I mean, you read his old Teen Titan stuff and it's campy and stupid. And then you read his Brave and the Bold and it feels like a very different, far more mature writer. Even when the Teen Titans are appearing in that title. And then these horror stories are, it's a different writer entirely. So number 43 just starts in the middle of the story. 
They don't bother with explanations. They don't try and, you know, tell you how the Titans got there. You're just in the middle of this awful nightmarish thing already happening. And it feels very much like you're actually in a nightmare where the Titans are racing to stop these demons on the top of this farmhouse who are dancing and throwing around this little kid. And there's a farmer on the ground going, you've got to save my little boy. And <laughs> wow. you're confused and just trying to figure out what the frick is going on. But these demons are tossing around a kid. And so you feel the urgency and you're wondering what are the Titans going to possibly do? What's messed up about the story is the pace continues like that for a while. And they finally eventually have a pause where you go back and you get the exposition and find out why they're doing this. And essentially, the, the backstory is these demons have been doing this to this kid for years now. Um, apparently, when he was an infant, he got really, really sick and it looked really bad. And then the next morning, he was totally fine, but the demons started appearing. And if you know wow. your myths and your lore, this feels a lot like the story of the Changeling. Um, but if you know that story at all, the way it would work was the demons would kidnap and, and often eat and kill a little kid and replace them with a demon that looked just like a little kid. So you're sitting there thinking, they, wow. they can't go that route. That This is a freaking, you know, mainstream comic book kids are reading. They, they, there's no way. The kid's going to be fine in the end. The kid's not fine in the end. It's exactly really? it's exactly what you think it is. And the most messed up part is the Titans aren't the ones who have to save the day in the end. The farmer, who's the grandfather to this kid, has to take his shotgun and freaking shoot and murder this demon that he's been treating like his grandson for all this time. And and this is shown this is shown on panel? Yes. Or, or is it a I mean they, they, there's no blood, oh, wow. they, they don't make it graphic, but it's like these are the Teen Titans. You know, our colorful superheroes yeah. who, who can do anything and say Ginchy at the same time. And the story ends on this really, like, morbid down note where the Titans, it's not their fault, but they failed. They were powerless to do anything. And I don't think Haney could have possibly planned or anticipated this, but that ends up being the final issue of the original series. It ends with the Titans failing on that note, and it's just... Oh, I go back and I read it again and again, and that story has no right to be as powerful wow. as it is. Now, now I got to dig these issues on. I got to find these issues. I start. I never read uh, the full run of the Teen Titans, the first, you know, those books. You're Actually, not missing you know, much. A, about a couple of months ago, I bought an omnibus of the Teen Titans. I think it has the first bunch of issues. I haven't even opened it yet, but now, I, now I am going to open it. Well, I, I know there's this one guy, I can't remember his name, at the Classic Comics Forum who's reviewed every single issue in painstaking detail and tells you which ones to read and which ones to skip. You can always check out wow. that resource. Yeah, maybe I will. Well, you know, that's kind of, you know, <laughs> I don't know why. I feel bummed out that <laughs> you told me the Teen Titans turned into like the Scooby-Doo uh, Scooby of the comic book world. And... But it really mostly works. Even the issues that aren't fantastic, just the mismatch of these bright characters fighting the supernatural is always interesting. Well, that's a very interesting number one pick. Not for nothing. <laughs> I always like to leave you confused and a little bit bewildered that you're still doing this podcast with me. Hey, I'm glad that you and I didn't pick the same book. So, I mean, you know, now I can, yeah. I can look at some of these books and you can look at some of my books, maybe. Almost. And I've got some rereading on Swamp Thing to do because I, I only marginally remember that issue you picked for your number one. So I want to read it again and try and get scared. Well, George, I'm thinking it's about time to bring this episode to a close. <laughs> I hope you had a fantastic time. I know I enjoyed going through uh, my favorites and least favorites and learning yours as well. I've got a few to look up. I had a blast, man. Yeah, me too. And I hope everyone listening had a great time as well. Listen, don't be sad the episode's over, because the conversation always continues at ClassicComics.org, where you can join in conversations about this very episode, and George and I will even respond. We read that stuff. We get excited about that stuff. Talk to us there. ClassicComics.org. And if that's not enough for you, don't forget you can always go to Patreon.com slash the Classic Comics Forum, where you can become a member and be able to unlock the secret. Hidden. It's not even worth getting into all the cool stuff that we have there. If you know, you know, and if you're a fan, you need to know. Patreon.com slash the Classic Comics Forum. Come check us out.
CCF In Depth is produced in partnership with the Classic Comics Forum. Our theme song is written, performed, and produced by Paul King. Special thanks to Scott Harris King, the creator of the original Classic Comics Forum podcast, which George and I worked tirelessly to drive into the ground into a flaming ball of wreckage. A very, very special thanks to our Patreon supporters, including Bill Sinclair, Marty Golia, Michael Gallagher, Paolo Zicadu, and Tim Schneider. You guys make the difference and encourage us far more than you probably should, and we thank you so much for that. We'll see you back here again in a couple weeks' time for our next episode, or check us out at classiccomics.org. Happy Halloween! Comics.org.